Okay. Wait, did I clap? I feel yeah. like I clap. Yeah, okay. you've just done a whole bunch of clap claps. Uh, let's see, where are we? Um, Groundhog Day. Is that today? I don't know. It depends on when we've published this episode. Oh, we could totally put it out on Groundhog Day, although normally we start our season around then. February yeah, 2nd. we could. I mean, the beauty of the internet, it doesn't matter when you put it out, because it just matters when you tell people it's out. That is true. I mean, we could put this out January 17th at 2 in the morning, but then we tweet about it on Groundhog Day, and people are like, oh my god, new episode. Ah, <laughs> uh, time is our bitch. Uh, which, really, I've often found bitch a weird word to say, because... I feel like, say, unlike my sister, mm-hmm. who would often describe things as girly, I, having grown up being called a girl a lot and being small and kind of effeminate, I was really uncomfortable all the time with words that referred to womenly things being used as insults. Mm. Um, or it could be... Yes, go ahead. Oh, I had internalized a lot of sexism growing up, and I was like would would you know have more male friends than females i would you know call things girly like you said lisa did i would think of things that were feminine as being less than good and not stuff that i wanted to be associated with and it took me a long time to figure out that what i had done is absorbed this notion from society that somehow women were not as good or femininity was bad or you know that that all of those things for me were associated with weakness. And it was like, it was probably in my late 20s before I really understood that how strongly that had affected me and how it, that actually I could pick and choose from what I wanted and evaluate it on my own terms rather than absorb other people's definitions of what was good and what was bad. Do you remember what kinds of boys or girls or men and women or humans that you felt particularly drawn to or identified with when you were younger in movies or real life? For me, it's obviously going to be movies, but it could be real life for some people. Um, or like, you mean like crushes or like role models or... Um, well, to briefly answer my own question, maybe to give it some idea for you, the answer to a question that I have <laughs> yeah, asked. Yeah, go ahead, robot boy. Um... <laughs> So uh, someone like uh, Alex Mack, like the secret world of Alex Mack's at Alex Mack, which was a Nickelodeon show about a young girl with magical powers. And she was a bit of a tomboy. And yeah, I kind of had a crush on her, but also she was just really cool. And like Natty Gan, which was this movie about a young girl that goes to find her father. Um, and she was a, she was, she was a tomboy. She rode a train and wore cool hats and, um, you know, my realization later in life is that my attraction to those people wasn't simply that I was attracted to them in a romantic way. I was attracted to them as me. Like, mm-hmm. that that looks like me. Yeah, I, I see what you mean. I think I can't right now recall any TV or movie people that I felt like that about. Um, I think what I was really found appealing in books or TV or, or life was the idea of transgression because I I grew up in a place where in a, in a space where it was very controlled over what was acceptable and what was not acceptable both in terms of gender but class and you know manners was a very important concept emotions were not allowed um and so the way you behaved at any moment was um 
very prescribed and so I was very attracted to people and characters that just rode roughshod over that so for instance my godfather was just this giant hero for me Tony because he didn't ascribe to any of that he had this amazing ramshackle house that was kind of half falling down and you'd be as likely to find a lamb asleep on his kitchen table as you would like three half-eaten jars of strawberry jam it was just it was just this kind of miracle place and you'd go in the back room and there were arcade games that you could play for free and it was it was so it was like a kind of a real version of narnia you know i felt like that magic every time i walked into his house um so i have orchestrated this entirely uh as the perfect introduction to groundhog day which is a film about gender and sexism uh no not really but it is kind of a movie about figuring out how to be a human and particularly how to live like what actions to take how can you make something out of this life that occasionally seems stupid so groundhog day is a film from 1993 hour and 40 minutes long nearly an hour shorter than last jedi and arguably tackles bigger questions <laughs> of good and evil and life and More death effectively. um though i really love last jedi but we don't want to talk about last jedi or that's all we will talk about. It's just, it's also, like Hemingway's. Not people have seen it yet. That's true. It would be too much spoiling. Uh, well, by the time this comes out in the end of January, it could be though. But as Hemingway said, sometimes with a story, or in this case, a podcast, if you omit something and know that you're omitting it, it just makes it better. So there you go. There's a hint. Uh, it was directed by Harold Ramis and written by him, along with another human whose name I have forgotten. Danny Rubin. There you go. Danny Rubin of the famous Rubin family, who somehow I think is famous. I don't know why. Uh, Ramis, of course, did Ghostbusters and Caddyshack, which I did not know he did, which is not a movie I particularly uh, ever watch again. So Groundhog Day, in case you don't know, uh, is a story of a man, played by Bill Murray, who comes to see life as an unending string of days in which nothing will ever change, no matter what you do in your life or with your death. It's just going to be the same. And this is mostly because he gets trapped in a time loop where he experiences the same day, Groundhog Day, over and over again. Uh, and it's worse for him because he's gone down there as a weatherman to see the appearance of the groundhog in the famous city of, I don't remember how to pronounce it. Punxsutawney. Punxsutawney, uh, which is a tradition in the U.S. where the groundhog comes out on February 2nd, and if it sees its shadow, is six more weeks of winter. If it doesn't, then I don't know. It's yeah, sun then I don't know what. It's sunshine. Less? Summer. Less? Summer comes. Okay. It doesn't. It doesn't. It just doesn't. Uh, but it's a real thing that happens, uh, and he doesn't want to do it. He's from the big city going to a small town to cover this ridiculous thing, and he's got his, his good buddy, the cameraman, who is played by Chris Elliott, who he just doesn't seem to care either way. He's happy. He's not happy. Nothing affects him. And he's, he's got clearly a complete stoner, that guy. <laughs> yeah. And he's got he's got Andy McDowell along with him, clearly playing somebody not named Andy McDowell, but I don't remember her name. Rita. Hmm? Rita. Rita. Uh and Andy McDowell, amazing. She was in Four Weddings and a Funeral. Uh-huh. Also had a brief part in Magic Mike XXL. Which uh, has got to be my favorite performance of hers in anything ever. Uh, 
but she's she, still hot at whatever she is 58 um and she's she's clearly too happy to be around bill murray <laughs> yes. uh and he doesn't like that uh either <laughs> um as we alluded to in the brief discussion of last jedi i love this movie so much and part of what i love about it is that in a movie that is sweet and kind of gentle and seemingly ridiculously simple in its conceit mm. manages to tackle ideas of existential despair in a way that I think may be more accurate than almost any story I've ever encountered. Right, when you see Bill Murray after he's lived through his day, you don't know how many, 10, 20, 50, 100 times, when he's reached that point where he cares so little and he's trying to before he's trying to kill himself he's just he just goes into this kind of flat dead-eyed space which you know he's a comedy actor but you you really feel for that kind of the depth of the pain that he's experiencing at that point you know i i i feel like you know the, the straightforward reading of this would is is about a guy a guy who learns how to live as a better human learns how to see other humans as real people and when he eventually does that that's when he escapes his time loop but for me i feel like it's it's not it's not clear cut you know because is it really him learning how to do this him ex expressing free will uh, and making these decisions if in actual fact he's tortured into this behavior because you know, living the day again and again and again. And he's just like, oh my God, you know, and he, his response, well, first of all, is to kill himself. And when that doesn't work, the only recourse he has is to try and engage and really see the people around him. Oh, that's, that's fascinating to read it. Like it's, it's, it's an interesting idea. How do you approach stories like this i feel like people have a tendency and i don't mean you did this but i've noticed it that when people see groundhog day it's a movie in which some fantastic stuff happened but if they read it in a short story this story of a man who got trapped in a time loop they'd be like oh it's this metaphor and this is what it means but somehow seeing something in a movie can flatten it sometimes because you are seeing a man tortured if it's pitched as a, com a comedy um, yes, yeah, yeah, though that's that's also, like, mind-blowing to me. Like, Borges is often hilarious. Like, a lot of fantasists and surrealists and absurdists like Beckett are, are just mm -hmm. funny. And the to pitch it as a comedy is accurate, but it's, all, it's, it's an absurdist comedy, which means it goes right down to the deepest levels of despair where you see Bill Murray kill himself over and over and over again. And the movie, uh, as many existential things do, reminds me... Of Colin Wilson wrote this book called The Outsider, which is his existential reading across the history of literature, of looking at, um, alas, mainly just men that felt like outsiders. But, you know, anybody can feel this way. And there's a quote, many quotes that I may read at various times during the discussion of Groundhog Day. But anyway, one of them, St. John of the Cross expressed the outsider problem as, I live, but there's no life in me, and in such a hopeful way, I die because I do not die. <laughs> I read that recently, and I was like, wow, that is a good description of Bill Murray's character in Groundhog Day. There's no life in him, 
and he keeps dying because he can't die, and he just tries it over and over again. To but to really circle hard back around, I I get what you're saying about is it really a story about somebody learning how to live if they're tortured to be that way? But I just I read it like every story is a kind of wish fulfillment. Mm-hmm. Kevin wanted to be left alone in Home Alone, which we discussed a little while ago, and in this movie. Bill Murray as the weatherman is a person who refuses life. He refuses to connect with people. Mm. And as his hell, he is forced to encounter the same people over and over and over again. And in that, you know, it's, it's, that's what feels so accurate to me is the feeling that I have when I enter despair, kind of existential feeling that nothing matters and everything is the same is that life deadens and it feels like I'm having the same conversations with the same people over and over again. And I, I do think that reading of it, while simple, is kind of cracks into it because the only way that Bill Murray has a chance of escaping this is to engage in life in a way he never has before. And this is an interesting point. How does he escape from it? I think the lesson is not that you learn how to live your life and escape. It's that you learn how to live your life accepting the prison that you're in. And and then the door opens. It's one of those horrible <laughs> fantasy paradoxes. If you can just accept the fact that you will never be free, Suddenly you're free. You're free. <laughs> you have redefined the parameters of your life. I really, I mean, I, I love, I love the story because of his arc and because of his growth and seeing seeing how his interactions with people change but but you know sometimes I mistrust myself and particularly one of the things I love about looking at stories is to is to look at my theory or my idea and say see if the opposite is also true see if there is an actually uh, an alternative reading that makes just as much sense and so the other part of this I love is is what you said about connecting with people. You know, he takes it's not until he's spent all this time with these people and really like understands who they are and what they love and what they need in life that that he's able to to transcend or escape. But yet it costs him nothing because his time is eternal. So suddenly in this <laughs> suddenly in this <laughs> eternal time loop you're not seeing my horrified expression <laughs> because, because he he's in he is in this loop and he suddenly understands he's going to be in it forever and so it costs him nothing to spend time with these people and to connect with them and i'm like well does it still have the same value you know that's the question i'm asking myself it's a good question i think you might be fighting yourself into a corner but it's a it's a great place for us to be does it cost him anything I, clearly my horrified expression was like he suffers so much it's only because it's a hollywood movie that you might think it softens it a bit in the sense that you don't see him racked but i don't i don't even think that's right i think the movie in its own language demonstrates the horror that he feels like when he starts trying to kill himself so what i mean to say is on the the front end the transformation of bill murray's character into someone who's trying to engage with people comes from a place of deep, deep despair and pain. Mm -hmm. He doesn't have to choose at that moment to try to do these things. Right. And, and it does cost him something in his sense of self, because it requires him to put his ego aside. Right. Yeah. yeah. There is no, there is nothing to say that that is, that would have been a natural choice for him. He has come to that decision admittedly over many days and repetitions 
But there would be others who don't make that, who don't learn that lesson, who don't make that choice. What's fantastic about the film, among other things, which is Bill Murray being Bill Murray and Andy McDowell being Andy McDowell, is the, the intelligence of the art. Because you're right, like a totally simple reading would be, dude refuses life. Granted, this is a simple reading that's also like existentialist, so it's just built in on the top. Like, dude refuses life, dude experiences despair, dude realizes, as, as it says here in the book, the outsider... <laughs> The way to innocence, to the uncreated, instead of narrowing your world and simplifying your soul, you'll have at the last to take the whole world into your soul, cost what it may. Uh, I don't know why I go into that voice when I read that line, but I really like it, the idea of instead of narrowing your soul, you have to open it is that Bill Murray does do that. He opens his soul. He starts learning piano, learning different languages, learning sculpture. There's something in the desperation of his desire to make something new of his life and to make it deeper that I recognize in a complicated way. Like, it's wonderful that he's trying to make his life better, but there is something of, like I said, desperation about it. Like, he's got to do something. But what makes the movie special is the old man, much like in Home Alone a few weeks ago, because the cost what it may, taking the world in cost what it may. You said it didn't cost him anything. To me, there are two things that kill him. One is he immerses himself in people's lives, And that leads him into immersing himself into this old man's life who dies during the day. And suddenly Bill Murray, who has not cared about anyone, is like, no, I don't want this man to die. I don't want people to die. And it hurt him when that man died. Mm. And it only hurt him because he started to care about people. Two, he starts to really not just think of Andy McDowell as this beautiful woman. He begins to really love her. Mm. And every day that he engages with her and they progress in their relationship and then she wakes up the next day and doesn't remember him hurts him. So I think he experiences a new level of pain because of his engagement with people. Yeah, perfect. It could be. Yeah, it is perfect. Uh, But I do have... This movie made me think a lot about what it means to love something or to fall in love with something. Uh, Because I'm in love with this movie and that is different than admiring it or thinking that it's funny or even loving it and I wondered kind of what that means to be in love with something kind of the only way I could think about it was through the language of the movie because I don't think I think it is a bit simple to think of the movie as Bill Murray just needs to learn how to fall in love and have Andy McDowell love him and then he's set free that is literally kind of what you see if you want to see it, because they finally experience a day together where they seem both really, they seem like the love is genuine between them, and then the the spell is broken and he's free. I kind of, in the same way you talked about fighting against your feeling, I kind of resist that idea that all you need is to fall in love with someone, because on the one hand it's kind of true, because I think part of the difference of falling in love is that you fall out of yourself and the world is made new. Through right, someone, you, what that quote that you just read, you know, you open yourself to the whole world. The story loses that romance between him and Andy McDowell. There's a moment where it seems like that's what it's going to be about. But then there's that passage where in his attempts to make something of his life, like he does make something of a life. He becomes a beautiful person that in a sense, in his opening to the world, opens himself to be truly loved by someone else. And it it becomes that really simple, complicated idea that I first heard in Moulin Rouge, that the greatest thing you'll ever learn is just to love and be loved in return. That acceptance that that's all you can hope for without a desire to escape 
great. It's got it's got everything in it that idea. It is both you learn to give and you learn to receive, which is somehow harder because for a lot of people it can put you in a position where you feel vulnerable or weak. Or like you have to figure out a reaction, you know, there's somehow like you can feel like you don't know the the script. Yeah, I think there there is a little conflict in it in that one of my other great narratives about the idea of giving up on a reward for being a good person uh, is Angel, the spinoff of Buffy the Vampire Slayer, where Angel, this ensouled vampire, kind of has this prophecy that the vampire with a soul, you know, he'll do enough good works and he can become human. Um, and at the end of that show, spoiler, there's a moment where he signs that away. Like it's in order to gain a kind of, I don't, I kind of don't remember what it is. I just know that he signs away his reward. Like he gives it up in order to make something good happen. And it ends with him going off to fight these demons, this magnificent horde of horrible things, knowing that there's no reward for him. Mm -hmm. And in that moment, you feel like he's the most free he's ever been. And, you know, in this movie, the spell does break. So he is literally free. But I do still have that sense that it is the fact that he's able to love Andy McDowell's character and to be loved by her and to listen to her and to listen to all these other people in the world, knowing, as the movie has taught him, that he's going to just have to do it all again, but to no longer be in despair about it, then he's free. And that's when the movie lets him go. We will be back soon with season three of Storyological, and we look forward to talking with you then. See you soon, readers. Not literally, of course. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. The fact that he's able to love Andy McDowell, Andy McDowell's character, <laughs> Andy McDowell. <laughs> the fact that he's. I'll wait, and then we'll put it in the bloopers. Um,